yeah, as soon as they opened the door, I knew. And I got out of the truck and I started going to the house and my brother tackled me on the stairs and then dragged me away from the house. And I just, I remember just beating my fists on the brick wall and just like, how could she do that? And yeah. But what helped me the most was I would go to group and I would share some of this stuff that I went through. I would share my story. I would share my loss. And then I would share what I did and what has helped me and stories I've read or things that I've done or things that I've noticed. And then to have somebody at the end of group come up and tell me, you know, knowing what you went through and seeing where you're at now, I know I can get there too. If you've lost three, I know I can get through losing one. And that helped like, oh man, that was a boost to know that my girl's story, their names, their memory is helping somebody else get through this tragedy. And I can't think of anything better that they would want to do in their lives. Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello everyone, welcome again to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today we're going to talk about something for the first time here on my podcast. And I just learned from our guest that it's also his first time in an interview to talk about his experience. But before we do that, I want to invite you all to really take good care of ourselves because it's a very sensitive subject. Even for my podcast, as you know, this is what we talk about here. We cover the topic of suicide. But today we're talking about murder-suicide, and we're going to talk to a victim of murder-suicide. So he lost his wife and two kids. So we are going to talk about that, but please take good care of yourself. If it's triggering for you, don't listen to it because it is. It's, I was talking to Michael, that's his name, and I said, yeah, Michael, this is the first time for me also. And uh, it's, it's like another level of triggering. So we're going to be very careful. We talked, we had a conversation before we recorded, but I just want to give you this trigger warning first. And then after that, thank you so much, Michael. I am so, I cannot tell you how honored I am. It must be very hard for you. You've been dealing with this for what, nine years now? Yeah, just over nine years. It was January of 2014. Yeah, the, I I remember this is, I met Michael at the conference of the American Association of Suicidology that happened here in Portland in April. But when I saw him and I, I heard about what happened to him, I told him, listen, let's do this after the conference because it's something that we both need to pre prepare for. I can't do this in, in a hasty manner on a date, you know, just let's just sit here and do this because it's a very, it's a very uh, tough subject to cover. So I'm so glad that you said yes, Michael, and that you are here willing to share with my audience, your experience, and what helped you. So thank you so much for saying yes and for, for being here with us. Absolutely. And thank you for doing this and helping as many people as you do. Well, so so do you. As I know, you participate in, in many uh, groups, right, to help. But here's the thing that I didn't know about Michael, too. Because I knew that he participated in meetings and everything, and uh, he's been doing it for years. He helps a lot of people deal with their suicide grief. But it wasn't until he went to the conference that he was actually able to say it was murder-suicide. I, I just, well, let's, let's start there. I want to hear your story, but I want to, I want to hear, because I am a person who believes, and as a clinician, I believe in the power of words. 
And uh, Freud said that, I mean, he was maybe one of the first or maybe the first to say, the moment you say the word, it becomes reality. Is that how it felt for you during the conference? Tell me what happened then that changed the way you saw what happened or the way you expressed yeah. it. Yeah, it, it it really is that way. Um, I went to, they had a meeting on murder-suicide um, and it was a smaller meeting. It was like an hour long and I was expecting it to be you know, not a very large group, but it was in the conference room and it was packed. And I was kind of surprised. I was kind of shocked. Um, and the when they were talking about the murder-suicide, I could relate to a lot of what was going on, um, especially with the the lady who had lost her, her child um, and her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could relate a lot to what they were saying and stuff. But in nine years, over nine years, I had never actually been been part of a discussion on murder suicide. I had talked about suicide. I had gone through other people's experiences with their suicide. I had given my experiences with losing daughters, with losing my partner, you know, the whole situation. Um, but I'd never actually discussed murder suicide. I mean, people knew what it was, but I'd always just said, you know, um, my partner Kyler took our daughters and then took, killed herself. And that's how I phrase it. And and part of me was saying that because I didn't want to, I mean, it's already a sensitive subject. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to make it more triggering to somebody by saying, you know, that she killed our daughters. Um, And maybe that was for me too. I didn't want it to be so hard for me. So I kept saying she took our daughters. After that conference or after that, that meeting, I did a few other things, met a few other people, went back to my hotel room, talked to my wife. I barely remember any of it. Um, I I remember a little bit here and there, but I don't remember much at all. I ended up taking a nap for a couple hours and woke up kind of confused, a little disoriented. Hmm. Um, And later went to dinner um, with the founder of our group and talked a little bit. And I realized that that was the first time that I had ever talked about it with a group or with anybody else. And then when we were at dinner, she noticed that for the first time, I had said that Kyler killed our daughters because mm-hmm. I'd never said the word killed. And, you know, and so she even noticed that there's a change. There's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And how does, how does this difference feel to you? I mean, what changed in you? What do you think putting these two words together changed in your grief process? It's, um, it made me realize that, I mean, this situation is, this sucks. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't do any good to soften what happened. I mean, it's like the whole stigma about suicide, about mental health. What good does it do to hide it? You know, Kyler tried to hide it from the world that she had mental health issues. What good did that do other than prevent her from getting some of the help that she needed? Mm-hmm. And I think by me saying she killed our daughters puts greater emphasis on the fact that yeah, this is a big tragedy. This is something that's not, I mean, why are we hiding it? Get it out in the open and let's make this a conversation that we can talk about so that we can maybe prevent it from happening more and more. Yeah, you said that uh, everybody knew it. Everybody knew what happened. Would they talk about it though? Oh yeah, but a lot of it, it and this is I think also where I say they, she took my daughters instead of killed them is because a lot of people were like in awe. It's like, oh my gosh and it was just overwhelming you know like I'm so sorry for you type of a thing and and I think in a way I don't want to hurt other people so I'd rather not say it but I'm realizing that that's that's not you know it's better to actually say it because it really shows the gravity of the situation and for me like some of the best things I've ever done is talk to people tell them what I've gone through what I've done to get myself better and have somebody tell me you saved me today. You helped yeah. me today. Having somebody tell me that. And so by opening it up and making it what it is, changes that a little bit. It makes it, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I've gone through hell. I have worked myself to a point that I'm comfortable, that I'm happy mm-hmm. again, that I'm productive, that I'm in a good place, and that I'm helping other people. I just, I I feel like now I don't need to hide that anymore. I don't need to soften it. I mean, it's, it's terrible as it is. Let's tell it how it is. Mm -hmm. Did it, when you came back, did you talk to your family about it too? 
I did. Yeah. And explain the whole, the whole thing to them. Uh, my wife is very supportive. She's actually on the board of directors for our suicide group. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she was really receptive and really productive with me as far as talking to me and giving me advice and, mm-hmm. and helping me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, it's, it's hard to even know. I mean, you, you're saying that it, it helps. I think the grieving just saying the word it's, as you said, it's the same with suicide, right? Yeah. So many is. of us hide it or don't use the word because it's just too heavy. Right. And when you put these two words together, I, I don't know. I, it's, I, I remember at the conference when they told your story, I think it was the leader of your group that shared your story. Right. I and think- then she started. Yeah, she, and, she introduced yeah. you. Her name, she, her, her name is May. She's she's an amazing person. So yeah. I remember May told your story. And I mean, even for me, I, I do this. I've been doing this for 17 years now. And I looked at this. How on earth do you survive something like that? Yeah, it, I almost didn't. I almost didn't. I, I'd never been depressed in my life. I mm-hmm. had never gone through any type of depression. I've never really been around somebody who was depressed. And when I was with Kyler and I understood that she was depressed and she would go through her medication and she would try to, you know, she'd realize things were not working. So she'd go back in and get it changed or, you know, at night she wouldn't sleep and she would just be up all night scrolling through diagnosis and, you know, ways that maybe she could help herself. You know, I had never dealt with that before ever. And then after this, I became very depressed and suicidal myself. Um, and I've got, I've got two boys that were still living with me. And I don't know, it's it just the, the depression just became overwhelming to the point that I didn't think about them. I was just so consumed with my grief afterwards. I totally understand it. But do you think you connected with her when that happened? With what she what was mean? going through? Uh, no, in terms of the um, pain, I think it, for me, I, yeah. as far, as far as the pain goes, yes, uh, definitely. As far as I, I understood the, the darkness, I understood where you get to that point where your brain is telling you, yeah, this is what you should do. You know, cause I did get to the point where I almost died by suicide myself and I started cutting as a way of coping. And my thought, when I got to that point, it really wasn't that like, like seriously in my head, I was like, I cannot let my son find me. It wasn't, I can't do this because because of me, them. because I want yeah. to live to, to yeah. live. Right. It, yeah. had, it had nothing to do with that. It was just, I'm in so much pain. This has to stop. I cannot go on this way. And my thought wasn't, how could I do that to him? I mean, look what it did to me. How could I do that to him? That was not in my head at all. In my head, it was, I just can't let him find me. That's my brain got so twisted that that's what I thought was correct. Mm. And it took some time. It took some medication. It took, uh, it took time for me to get to a point where I felt like, Oh, you know what? I'm safe now. I feel like I'm not going to hurt myself. I can now start working on my grief and I can now really do the hard work. Yeah, Michael, I want to talk about what you say, what you call the hard work. But I think before we go there, I would love to hear about you and your wife and your kids, because I want to honor their life as well, because we tend to just remember what they did and how they died. And I don't want to go there. So I want to know, I mean, how did you guys meet? What attracted you? I mean, what, what was attractive to you in her and in your relationship? And also, I mean, the struggles, because you said that she struggled with, with, yeah. I don't know, suicidal ideation, but for sure with mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she did. Yeah. A lot. Um, so um, I was uh, working in financial aid at a small college here and she was a student at the college and we ended up meeting that way. Um, probably kind of just met and flirted for a few years, you know, often on that way. And then we finally got together. And she was a very, very smart person, um, very kind. Uh, I remember going to the mall with her. Um, she was working at the buckle at the mall, and I went to have dinner or lunch with her. 
And there was a guy outside that didn't have, you could tell he was homeless and she invited him in and bought him at, you know, at lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and she, that's how she, she just, she thought of other people a lot. She was constantly, you know, trying to improve herself. She was trying to help other people when she could. Um, our daughters, Kennedy was, she was 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a swimmer. She was so good at swimming. She, she cared about everybody. She constantly, you know, was, was helping her friends she would go there and support them and bring them up. She would do, you know, a lot of things. It was, you know, mm-hmm. and then Bella was just, just a fun <laughs> six-year-old and she just turned seven. She was just like one of my favorite memories of Bella is going to pick her up. And then she just, uh, from school, uh, kindergarten. Yeah. And uh-huh. she's just, well, I guess it was first grade, but she just, uh, she, she ran at me and just jumped in the middle of the students, everything. My God, she just give me a big hug and just held on to me. And it's just, uh. yeah. Those oh, memories yeah, are memories that you, you never forget. You know, you know, that's yeah, that's the age that they still do that. They jump on yeah, you, right? <laughs> they jump, yep, yep. Full on. She was so happy. I was there at the end of the day. It was one of the first couple of days she was at that school, and she just full on jumped onto me and you know, held on to mm-hmm. me. And yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, what was your family life at the time like? Um, it was a little struggle here and there. We were mm-hmm. trying to bring everybody together. Um I've got again, two older boys. So the girls at the time were 13 and six, just turning in seven. And then I've got two boys who were 19 and 17. Mm-hmm. And we got along. Okay. Everybody was fine. Um, but mm-hmm. the rules were a little hard, you know, um, Kyler wanted to have the same rules for all the kids and the boys were older and it's like, you can't have the same rules for them. And there were arguments back and forth. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of contention with the kids mm-hmm. and with her yeah that's that's not that's not easy yeah it uh, is bringing I, kids it, is hard enough yeah and especially older teenagers who are more independent and don't want to have the rules and having somebody else tell them that these are the rules you know yeah, yeah they didn't yeah. didn't like that too much did you see that she was struggling at the time you told me that she was struggling with with sleep so that you knew but you did you just didn't know the extent of it it sounds like I, didn't. Um, I found out later um, after she had died that she had attempted twice when she was a teenager oh. to the point that she was in the hospital and everything. I didn't know that um, before. She would be on depression medication and sometimes she'd forget to take it. And then I'd notice things were getting bad and I'd say something and then she'd remember and start taking it again. Or she'd be taking it for a while and all of a sudden her body would change. Something would change and it no longer worked. So she had to go in and get it adjusted or fixed. And so she was constantly going through and, you know, at night we'd lay down in bed and she'd just be on her phone, you know, and it's like, do you want to talk? Are you okay? No, I'm fine. And she's just reading through different prognoses, different diagnoses, different um, ways to help to, you know, maybe ways without medication, all sorts of stuff. But that's constantly what she was doing was trying to make it so that she didn't have this, this mental issue that she was dealing with and I don't even I couldn't even tell you the extent of what she was going with because she tried to hide it she mm-hmm. did not want people to know um she did everything she could to try and keep people from knowing yeah yeah and as you said I mean you're married to her and you did know about the prior uh, attempts how did you did, find out I, about that I didn't so um going through her journals and then talking to her sister and her parents afterwards um I found out that she had attempted I think she was 15 when she had attempted and then she had attempted again when she was I think 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. but in her journal when she was 15 when she had attempted she had said um she wrote in her journal that um she didn't want to live but she didn't want to leave her family and she wondered if she could take her family with her Mm. so that was kind of in her head from 15 years old on so in her mind the thought I don't think was murder in any way I don't I think in her mind it was no I'm saving them I'm protecting them I'm taking them with me Do you have a friend or a loved one who struggles with suicidal thoughts ideation or even previous attempts if you do 
I have some information for you. I know that the situation is scary, and many times we want to do the best we can to help, but we don't know how. Over the course of my 15 years working in this field, I have learned how to address these issues, and that's what I want to share with you. And for that, I have just created an online course that will guide you step-by-step on how to sit down and have this difficult conversation. The course is called How to Help Suicidal People, and I purposely took a very straightforward approach so that when you finish, you will feel prepared to take action in a safe, non-judgmental and compassionate way. You will learn about the mental state of a suicidal person, how it impacts the way they view their personal crisis, how to bring hope into the conversation, how to prepare yourself to listen to them, especially when they talk about their emotional pain, how to create a safety plan, how to assess their risk level, and much, much more. The course comes in six modules and it's all videos with very simple language and reading materials for quick reference. If you think that this course is for you, click on the link on my notes or go to my website understandsuicide.com and click on the course tab. There you can also watch a free sample and have more information about the course. Thank you. Yeah. And as you remember at the conference, uh, when we, we, we heard Thomas Joyner, you know, the theorist, and he had a theory of, he has a book called The Perversion of Virtue. And that's what he says. There are four, what happens when you, when you do commit murder, suicide is that first of all, the first idea is the suicide itself. And then it morphs into murder too. But he says that it's a it's a consequence of what he calls perverted virtues. And these virtues are justice, mercy, glory, and duty. And in your case, that's the one he calls mercy, because it, that's the one that he associates with murder-suicide, usually between either partners or uh, parents and kids. I can't leave them to deal with this. So I'm taking yes. them with me. Is that how yeah. you see it? No. Yeah, it's absolutely how I see it. I, I I have no doubt in my mind. We we had a discussion a year before this happened. And this is, I, I use this to tell people, uh, to help people a lot um, because we had this exact discussion about exactly what she was going to do. And she did exactly what she said. And this was a year before. We what do you mean? Discussed. She told you? She told you this oh, yeah. is what I'm gonna really. She, she she said she said you know what I I need to let you know this and she said I am suicidal sometimes and I want you to know that if I decide to I know how to do it I know what I'm gonna do and this is it and that's and she just came right out and told me you know that way I'm like I'm like you can't do that and I said for first of all you know how could you leave your girls because. When Kyler was three, her dad died by suicide and her family never talked about it ever, Mm. not a thing. And I remember, I remember one time, you know, she got all, she got drunk. She got really upset. And she, she was like, why did my dad leave me? You know, she, I think internalized a lot of that stuff because she Mm. didn't have the facts. So she made it up and she made it all about her, that he left her for some reason. Um, and without being able to talk to anybody about it, yeah, she had nowhere to go. Um, and so when we talked about that, when she told me that she was suicidal or could be suicidal, and if she did, this is what she would do. And I, I asked her, I said, how could you do that to your girls? I mean, look what it did to you. How could you do that to Kennedy and Bella and leave, you know, leave them? And, and she just looked at me like, are you serious? There's no way I could leave them. To leave them to to deal with all this, to to have somebody else take care of them without me there, you know, no, there's no way I could do that. So in her mind, it 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 wasn't necessarily mercy or anything. It was, I mean, I think it falls under that mercy category. But for her, it was just black and white. It's like if I can save them, I'm saving them, and that's I think the way she thought about it. And it was more the girls. I don't think really were part of the 
the suicide. It was just more of a, of course, the girls are part of me. And if I'm not going to live, I need to protect them and take them with me. I really believe that that's what she thought. Yeah. And that's the power of what you're doing and what I try to do with my work. I mean, let it out. Use the word. Talk to kids about it. Don't silence about suicide because kids will always, this is what kids do. Well, they will always believe it was their fault. Yeah. It's not my father took his life. It's my father left me. Yeah. I yeah. wasn't enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and that, I, yeah, that's how you feel. And I, I do use this, uh, you know, when I talk to people, because a lot of, for me, the guilt was probably the hardest thing because we had a fight um, and, and I knew her emotional situation and stuff and we would fight and she would say things that you should never say to anybody to try and push me away. And her sister later told me that I was the only person ever in her life that didn't leave. I think the longest relationship she had before me was six months because she would say things to people and push them away. And I didn't, I just, that's like, okay, when you calm down, we'll talk always, always, always. That's what I did. When you calm down, we'll talk. We'll talk tomorrow. We don't need to argue tonight. And I let it go. The night that this happened was the first night that I stood up. It's the first night that I fought back. It's the only day that I actually know you are wrong. I am right on this. And I am not backing down on this. That was the only time. And I threatened to move out. I started to move out. She's then decided to kick me out, you know, power struggle type thing. And we let it escalate. And so, and then that night it happened. And I use that to tell people, it's like, look, she told me a year before. I dealt with all of this for so long, yet I couldn't stop it. I mean, it wasn't my choice. And unless I could be there 24-7, there was nothing I could do. Absolutely nothing. And that is kind of how I help deal with my guilt, is that it took me a long time to realize I could not have stopped it. It was her choice. Yes, yeah, I was, you were talking and I'm thinking about the phrase that um, I heard from Stacey Friedenthal in her, she wrote in her book and it's related to this. She says, do everything you can, but no, you can't do everything. Yeah. There is a limit, right? And it sounds like for the whole time that you were together, you were the one who were calm down and who were able to say, this is not the good moment for us to talk about this. Let's wait a little bit. So you're a human. It sounds like really nobody could stop her. It was something that was in her mind for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, that's, if there's anything that I can tell people who are grieving, who are going through any suicide is that recognize that it was not your choice and that, yeah, unless you were, unless you lock somebody down, you can't stop it. No. No, I hope that nobody blamed you. Um, Because that happens. No, not directly. I mean, I I think there were some people at first, at first, because uh, the way the news reports things. Yeah, they don't get all the facts right, but they report the story. Um, They report what neighbors hear. So, yeah, first, there was a lot of people who thought I had done it. Um, And then, yeah. (laughs) Um, and it, it was hard that night. I was in the in the police off or police department for you know four or five hours because they were questioning me, thinking that maybe I did this. And it took a while. After you had a little to investigate. while, investigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I understood. I, I do, but you know, but I was also in so much shock and stuff. I didn't even realize how long I was in the police station. You know, it wasn't until my mother called a lawyer to get me out that they that I even realized it's like, wait, are you thinking I did this? You know. It didn't even so, cross your mind, yeah. Not even, no, no, I was, and and I didn't even realize how long I'd been there. To me, it's like one second, one minute, one hour. It's like they all blended together at that, that night because it was so shocking, you know. Mm. And then, I, do and then you even the, remember? Do you even remember oh, yeah. what happened? You do? Because yeah. no, for some people, yeah. I mean, I have, I have zero memory of the few days after my dad died. But for some people, like my sister, it's the opposite. She remembers every second of it. Yeah, I, I remember it all because again, we were, we were moving. Um, again, she'd kicked us out that day, that night, and they kicked me out and 
threw my clothes on the floor and you're never going to see the girls again and shut the door, you know, all this stuff. And we've fought a little bit and okay, fine. And, and we had talked that, that night and she said, all right, the girls are at school tomorrow. Come and get whatever you can get before they get home from school. And so I went with my mom. We got a few people, got a U-Haul truck, went over there, started moving things out of my stuff. She worked from home and the bedroom door was locked. And so I thought she was working because she didn't get along with my mother too well. But I think that's because she didn't want to. She was afraid of her. So I, I was trying to talk to her through the door. And it's like, look, one of the contentions we had is some of the paintings that I had. And I told her, it's like, look, I'm leaving the paintings here. A lot of our issues were, you know, she didn't get along with my kids, very, my boys very well. And there were a lot of contention with that. And, you know, my youngest boy was 17. He was graduating high school that year. He was going to go off to college. They were both going to go off. So it's like, let's give us six months. Let's let him graduate. Let's let him start to move out. We'll work on things and then everything will be fine. So let's just separate a little bit until that happens. Mm-hmm. Well, I was telling her through the doors, like, uh, I'm leaving the paintings. I'm leaving this. So, you know, I'm coming back. And, you know, she didn't respond to me. She didn't say anything, but she had died the day be- night before. I didn't know. I oh, didn't. so she was already dead at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't and know. So, yep. And so we were moving everything out. And then we left and I still kept trying to talk to her. It's like, you know, call me later, talk to me later. Let's, you know, talk, you know, whatever. And then later that night, I I told my mom, I said, let's just drive by the house. I just don't feel right. And we drove by the house and the car was parked in the exact same place. It hadn't moved. And even though the school was right around the corner, she didn't let the girls walk to school. So it's like, well, then that means the girls didn't go to school if she didn't move the car. And it was darker. The lights were all out. And all three of the girls are kind of scared of the dark. They always sleep with lights on and all the lights were out. And I'm like, something's wrong. And her sister lived around the corner. So we called her sister. My brother was with me because he was helping move. Her sister came around. They went to open the door. And as soon as they opened the door, I just like. You knew. Yeah. As soon as they opened the door, I knew. And I got out of the truck and I started going to the house and my brother tackled me on the stairs and then dragged me away from the house yeah and I just I remember just beating my fists on the brick wall and just like how could she do that and yeah and then the police came and then they took us to the police station and then we sat in the lobby for a while and then they finally took me back and my brother since he was there and went inside but then they let him out and yeah, I just stayed there talking and answering questions for four hours, five hours. And you already knew that she, by then you knew that yeah. both the kids were dead too. Yeah. And I called her dad and talked to him and um, yeah, and talked to her sister and stuff. Wow. I can't even imagine what you were going through. I mean, and, and have to be interrogated through all that it's kind of interesting because the interrogation at the time seemed like nothing because again i was i didn't even realize how long i'd been back there because you were not there actually right your mind was not there no yeah (laughs) yeah i was going through almost immediately i should have done this why didn't i do that i should have at least called her dad her sister was right around the corner why didn't i at least call her and tell her what's going on But I think in my mind, I was justifying by saying, well, I was going to, we were going to talk, we were going to work things out. We were, you know, Mm -hmm. so I, but I was going back and forth, even right then, even that same night, I was already in the, what if I should have done this, I could have done this, but all that. That's when the what ifs start immediately. Yep. The what if should have, could have. Yeah. Yep. And I'm sure you were troubled by those for years. Yeah. Well, and, and the guilt, I mean, again, it, I still, honestly, to this day, I still have some guilt that I didn't do something as far as the girls go. I, I completely understand, like looking back at my life and things with her, I think that there was probably three or four times that I stopped her from dying by suicide, mm-hmm. but I didn't know. I had no idea, but looking back on it, mm-hmm. it's like an eye open. It's like, oh my gosh, she was going to do it that night. And I happened to come home that night. You know, like New Year's, 
just before this happened, so 14 days before New Year's, I was painting a house that we, my, my house that I had, um, the one that I did move back into, but I was painting it because we were getting ready to rent it. And we had a little bit of a fight that night, uh, New Year's the day before, but New Year's Eve, I just decided to go to the house just just because I wanted to spend New Year's Eve with the girls. And Kennedy was watching TV downstairs and I talked to her for a little bit and then I went upstairs and then Kyler just looked at me and she's like, why are you here? I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I here? And she's like, and she's like, how did you know you had to be here tonight? It never clicked. It, it didn't, it didn't yeah. register my mind that that's what she was talking about. But it, looking back on it, she was yeah. going to do it that night. She was, I guarantee she was, but yeah, it was constantly. It was just like, how did you know you had to be here? And she, she spent hours asking me that question. Why did you show up? And it just, again, it never, never even clicked until afterwards. No, it never does. I mean, it never crosses our minds, does it? No, no, no. no because we're, we're because our, our minds are not that, our, our minds are not thinking that way. And, no, you know, no. yeah. I mean, so I had read something um, afterwards that had said, um, you know, like, how could a mother do that to their children? You know, um, or how could anybody die by suicide? What in their mind is telling them mm -hmm. that this is good? And it's like, yeah, that's the problem. Their mind is telling them out of every option possible, suicide is the best. That tells you that there's something crossed. There's something wrong yeah. with yeah. the way that they're thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the only option. Yeah. It's not, not just the best, but the only option. It's the only right? option. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for some reason, all the other options just you know, go out of your brain, out of your mind. Yeah. And I'm thinking about something you mentioned about Kyla, that her sister told you, you were the only one who didn't leave. Right. And then you left that day and that's where the guilt comes from. But I'm thinking about the sense of abandonment and people who usually go through abandonment like that, the fear of being abandoned, it's so overwhelming that they would rather push someone away than to be abandoned by them. Yeah. yeah. So and I think a, that's what keeping a sense of control, right? Right. Yep. Yes. Does it make sense to you? It does. And, and, and Kyler would tell me that, you know, or uh, Kyler's sister, Lindy would tell me that, um, that Kyler would push people away and then mm. she would feel justified and you see you were going to leave me anyway mm -hmm. and yeah. that was kind of her attitude is see you were going to leave so I just pushed you out earlier yeah because I don't want to go through that pain again exactly of being yep. left yeah I know yep. what it feels like right yeah I want it on my terms basically yeah 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 how did your family react and how did her family react because we know suicide is a different kind of grief yeah it definitely different um it was um, a little mixed. Um, my family was extremely supportive. My my boys had a few issues here and there because they, you know, especially my older son, he was the one that really had the most problems with her and he felt guilty about it too. And the problem is, is because I was so consumed with my guilt for the first year or more, I really did not talk to them about their guilt and their, you know, trials and things that they were going through. Um, I wish I'd had, but they... I think had other resources to, you know, and then they were of course worried about me because I mm -hmm. was, you know, not going down a bright, a good path. My mother was supportive. Uh, my, my sister-in-law, um, Rebecca, she's got a degree in psychology and I had talked to her um, afterwards and, and she felt really guilty too, because she's like, how could I not have seen this? And I'm, of course, already, I'm, yeah. really I'm supposed you know? to be trained for this. Right? Yeah. You know, and it's weird because it was me comforting her. It's like, yeah, you couldn't have seen this any more than I did because Kyler hid it from everybody. She did not want anybody to know. So, yeah, you know, but Rebecca, um, I, I set up with her that if I had any issues at any time, I could call her. And there were times like midnight, I'm driving home somewhere and I'm just, I'm going to run this car off the road. I'm, I'm angry. I'm, you know, frustrated. And I called her. And she was in bed, but she answered and she just talked to me, didn't say anything, just, well, how's the weather? You know, how, you know, what are you listening to? You know, where are you going? Where did you come from? And just simple daily stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She listened. Got, yeah. And having that person, that one person to say, call me whenever and I'll just talk. I'll just listen. I'll just whatever. Make sure you're safe. That 
that was key that first year is having her there. It's simple. It's as simple as that, isn't it, Michael? It really is. You know, and that's one thing when we when we do our group and the the groups that I facilitate. That's one thing I tell people. It's like, look, in the first year or so, have somebody that you can reach out to. It doesn't matter who they are. Just get a couple of people that you can say, hey, if I have a hard time, can I call you for a minute? Even if it's a midnight, I guarantee you'll find a couple of people who say yes. And do it because it could save you so much torment in your life. Yeah, I love I love the, the words of Edwin Schneidman. He said there are two questions to ask. Where does it hurt and how can I help? It's not really complicated. It really not. isn't. People yeah. think that no, but I need to. I, I'll have to know what to do and what to say. No, you don't have to say anything. Actually, right. it's not don't about talking. Don't. It's about listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and a lot of people it's like, well, I don't know what to say. It's like that's yeah, good enough. Yeah. I don't know what to say either. You know, yeah, I don't know how you do it. Neither do I. Mm-hmm. You know, but Michael, I would, I would love to hear from you. What helped you? You said that during the first year, that was something that really helped. Maybe it was the main thing that helped. Uh, what else helped you? Well, um, so the first year um, was really bad for me. I mean, I was mm-hmm. depressed. I was yeah, suicidal um, too. Yeah. Suicidal. I, I turned to cutting and I turned to cutting because I couldn't fix what happened but I could fix the cuts, you know, I could have that release, that pain, that whatever. And then I can spend a week taking care of my arm, you know, or the cuts and stuff. And I got to the point where it's like this, I can't do this. My mom was worried, everybody, you know, and I had never been on depression medications. I finally got on and that I hated it. I hated being on them, but it mellowed me out completely. I had no desire to hurt myself. I had, no desire to be happy. I wasn't sad. It wasn't, you know, it was good though. Great. It got me to a point where I could take some time. And you know, that there's that, that phrase time healed all wounds, which is not true, but time gives you the distance from what happened so that you can work through it. And that's what the depression medications got me through is it got me to a point where it's like, okay, I think I'm okay. I know I'm not going to hurt myself now. I'm in a better place. I understand. I've I've, I've got enough distance. It was about a year or so afterwards. I've got enough distance from the actual event that it's not overwhelmingly, you know, pushing me down that dark path. And then I slowly worked off the medication Mm -hmm. and then started to actually work on things. And and for me, working on things was going to group, going to my group, because I had individual counseling. And for me, it didn't work out well. I think the counselor was not a suicide grief counselor. She was just a grief counselor. She didn't understand. She was trying to make me do different, you know, right with my left hand or what Kyler might think. And I just, it's like, no, that's not what I need. But the group, when I went to group, that helped to hear other people say the thoughts they, they were in their head. And for me to say, I've got those same thoughts. Oh, okay. So I'm not different. I'm not, you know, abnormal. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, these people have the same situations, the same thoughts. And then to hear somebody give me an example, as far as, you know, I, I went through the forest today and, and there's all these dead trees along all the living trees. And that reminds me that that is among the living. So our loved ones are still with us. You know, mm-hmm. things like that, just little things, uh, going for hiking, going hikes or going running or doing little things like that. And so I started actually paying attention to what people were saying and then trying some of their advice, you know, not just, oh yeah, that would be a good idea, but actually doing what they're suggesting to do. And then that helped that, that actually did help me a lot. And so then I started, okay, well, what else can I do? What else will help me? Um, and so I started doing other things. I started, I don't know. I, 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 for me, I started talking to the girls, I, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I kind of did that throughout, but I started actively talking to them as I was doing things and that helped me may not help everybody, but it did help me. And I started, you know, figuring out ways to, to help me grieve, to help me work through things, books I read, you know, phrases, passages, but what helped me the most was I would go to group and I would share some of this stuff that I went through. I would share my story. I would share my loss. 
And then I would share what I did and what has helped me and stories I've read or things that I've done or things that I've noticed. And then to have somebody at the end of group come up and tell me, you know, knowing what you went through and seeing where you're at now, I know I can get there too. If you've lost three, I know I can get through losing one. Mm -hmm. And that helped like, oh man, that was a boost to know that my girl's story, their names, their memory is helping somebody else get through this tragedy. And I can't think of anything better that they would want to do in their lives would be to help people. I mean, Kyler loved helping people. So if she knew that her memory and her story was helping somebody, it makes me feel like she would be happy and proud. I understand. And I can hear in your words and in your voice, I mean, the all that you have been trying, you know, throughout these years. And yeah. the first thing that caught my mind was the metaphor that when you talked about the cutting mm. and how cutting was... I. Also, uh, in a way, you taking care of yourself because you could you, you were taking care of your wound. Yeah, and just the metaphor. Okay, I this is a way for me. Even though I know that it's really hard for people to understand cutting and and self harm, and of course, I'm not advocating that. But oh. we understand that even for suicide, it it can be a protective factor sometimes. People associate yeah. that with suicide, but it can be the opposite. It can be a, a warning sign, of course. It is a risk mm -hmm. factor. Yeah. But we know that it it can help people not go there, right. right? And it sounds like that's what it was to you. The second thing that I, I heard you say was how the medication helped to stabilize. I And I... I connect with you 100% because I, the same thing after my dad died, I was in the state of confusion. And then I was diagnosed with, with uh, depression and I took medication and I felt the same way that you did. Because what the medication is, does is it erases the, the extreme, the extreme yeah. emotions. You don't get desperate anymore, but you also don't get very happy. So right. you kind of exactly. stay in that, in that middle zone, right? And for some people, that, that's very difficult to live with. But when you are in that state of despair, and in your case, you were suicidal, it keeps you alive and it stabilizes you enough, long enough for you to say, okay, now I'm ready to taper off the medication. That's what I did. And that's what you did too. At some point you just go, okay, I can, I can do it alone without the medication. And, and that sounds like that's what happened to you. Right. Yeah. And the third thing is group. I honestly believe Michael, I'm with you. First of all, most clinicians, unfortunately, don't know how to deal with suicide grief. They don't. I know because I get people who come to you after they've tried a few and they hear, you know, I hear all these stories of people trying to fix you or they just don't connect. They don't. Yeah, I remember they, a client. They don't of mine, no, I, re I remember a client of my father. I needed someone who gets it, who knows what I'm talking about, because it's different. And it is. And it's helpful. I'm not saying it's not helpful. If, if you find someone, find someone who can deal with suicide, right? And, and knows how to do that. It's good. But I, I truly believe that nothing is better than group. Yeah. Yeah. And being with people that, that can share those, the, the understanding and really can, can give you some of the advice that you're already thinking yourself. You're just like, for me, there was a lot of times it's like, why am I thinking this? You know, I, I couldn't really give you an example, but, but there's a lot of times it's like, why should nobody else that I know lost their, you know, so-and-so to a, a car accident or to cancer or something like that. They're not feeling this way. Why am I thinking this? But then to be in a group with other people who are thinking that kind of normalizes me, you know, kind of makes me feel like, you know what? Yeah. Your thoughts are not abnormal. You know, this is, this is a different type of a situation. Yeah. 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 In, in what you said too. One of the best things about group, group to me, two things that I think are very important and very healing. One is the fact that you, you, when you realize, wow, I'm not alone. I'm not alone with 
thinking I'm being crazy or that there's, like you said, I'm not abnormal, right? So this feeling of, norm, uh, like you said, normalizing, but not feeling alone with your pain, which is very healing. And the other thing is hope. I can't even measure the amount of hope, Michael, that you give people just by being there. Because if you've lost someone to suicide, but you, you look at someone in group and say he lost his wife and two kids and he's still, he's still here and he's functioning and he's able to help and talk about his experience. If he can do it, I can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with our, with our um, group, our lost group, there's a, at the end of the meeting, we have a little thing where we, we talk and it's um, one of the phrases um, so on the, this pamphlet that I'm writing, um, I put this on here because I think it's really important. It says, um, with loved ones, suicide survivors, that's our group. Um, it says, knowing that we are not alone as survivors of suicide, we believe that together we can find help in healing our wounded hearts and in rebuilding our lives. It's powerful. I think that's really important, you know, because together we do help each other. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it it is it is a different kind of grief. So that's why we we have I I facilitate as a volunteer every month a group on on suicide grief, and I just see healing all the time. Just just the way that the group members interact with each other, because that's yeah. the that's what I try to do. I mean, I'm I'm out of here. I'm just a facilitator. It's 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 you guys, right? You're do the healing, help each other and how they engage with each other and how, as you, I'm sure you've seen this so many times, sometimes you can tell that one group member is going through hell that day and how everybody unites and they go, okay, this today is about you. How can we yeah. help you? I mean, exactly. it's just the most powerful experience you can have. Yep. Yep. And, and being able to share the memories and not just the suicide and, and mm. the aftermath, but the memories of who they were and, and the stories that you remember that make you smile, you know, like I've got this, I've got this, I, I heard this from somewhere and I don't remember what it was, mm. but it's like, sometimes a memory comes out of my eye and runs down my cheek, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah that that's, so I love that. In, so it comes group. out your eyes and runs down your cheek. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that's fine. And uh, I'm glad that you feel comfortable today talking about it. And you cry and you stop and you breathe and you talk again. Yeah. Again, for me, it's been nine years. So I've had quite a bit of time to do this, but I feel like I've worked around my grief enough that when it does fall in my lap, which it does from time to time, I know how to pack it back away. I sit with it for a minute. I process it. I use it. And I put it away. Mm -hmm. How are your kids doing now, Michael? They're good. They're both, uh, they're, they don't seem to have any residual issues mm -hmm. with what's going on now. Yeah. Um, they're supportive of me. They're obviously sensitive to the suicide topic when it comes up um, with other people and stuff. But um, yeah, they're, they're both good. But do you open that door? I mean, there's no that they can talk about it. If oh, they absolutely. Want yeah. 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 It, oddly enough, we don't talk about it. We really don't. Yeah, but but the difference is, do you not talk about it because it doesn't come up? Exactly. Or do you not talk about it because it's forbidden? This is oh, the no, difference, no. right? It's always, yeah. It's with always you, different. it's because it, I'm sure they would if they, you know, if it comes up in, and I'm sure it comes up for everybody here and there, maybe not when you're all together. Right. And, and it will come up. There, there'll be times where I'll talk about what I'm doing with the group. And, you know, Matthew will say something or Brandon will say something and, and yeah, we'll have a little discussion, but that's what we need. We don't need, you know, our relationship with me and those two boys are, you know, we're in a good place and mm -hmm. we don't need to bring it up because we've gone through a lot. We've already worked through a lot. And so now when it comes up, it's more of a, yeah, this is what we're thinking. Okay. Yep. Yeah, me yeah. too. And that's about all we need. Yeah. Michael, tell me, what have you learned with this experience about yourself? Because I look at you, I don't know you, but I hear what I see when I look at you and I hear your story is a very resilient, very kind man. What have you learned about yourself through all this? Oddly enough, I think I've become kinder. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, a lot of things don't bother me anymore. A little like, sure, I get frustrated with things, but it's like, you know what, in, in the overall, this really doesn't matter. You know, this little, this little annoyance that's bugging me today and really frustrating me. All right. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not that, uh, you know, there, there's definitely worse things that can happen. And yeah, I, I've learned to become more compassionate. I think mm-hmm. a lot more understanding, a lot more understanding of anybody's struggles, not just my own, but just any struggle because you never know how deep that is. I mean, most people, you know, just like Kyler, it's the tip of the iceberg is while they're showing you. There is so much under that water. You have no idea what they're going through. And I've learned to become a lot more compassionate and a lot more understanding. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're more able to to ask the questions and to talk about it and open your heart to listen, right? Oh, sure. When I, um, so I, I drive for Lyft and Uber, I'm just kind of on the side. Um, and in my car, I've got a little entertainment system. And on it, I've got a little sign that I say that's supported by loss. And I, there's two phrases that I've got on there. And it says, um, one of them says, talk about suicide to stop suicide. Because I really truly believe that if we talk about it and open it up and end that stigma, that it will help people who are, who are feeling isolated. And then the other thing that is on there, it says uh, suicide doesn't end the pain. It just passes it on to those who are left. And having that in my car, when I'm giving people rides, I cannot tell you how many people open up. Open up and because they see that. Yes, it's an open door. Yeah. Yep, yep. And they talk. And, as, and, you know, I had one guy, it's like, yeah, I lost my brother two years ago and I have never been able to find a support group or anything about it. And being that he saw that, he got the information, he's come to group, you know, other people just, yeah, I've had people tell me that they are suicidal. And we've had a a discussion during the entire trip, you know, about all sorts of things. It's just, it it opens things up. And, you know, I I feel very confident and, you know, about talking about that subject, because in my opinion, anybody you listen to, you're helping do you think that it it works the same way for you now? Are you more open to asking for help? Um, when I need, when I feel like I need help, yeah. I, I, I've, I don't know, I've gotten to a point where a lot of things just don't bother me anymore. It just, it, it Understandably, really it's perspective, right? It really is, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, early on, I um, did a a project where I would write down you know, I, I like I, I told my story over and over and over and over again so that I could tell it without sidetracking onto all sorts of different tangents that I could be succinct and say, this is what happened. These are the facts of what happened. Uh-huh. And that helped. And then I got to the point where I was writing down just different, um, um, just different methods, different things that I would do. I don't know, want to say it numb me, but it kind of normalize things instead of it being a shock when I would tell somebody because it was shock to me I still get emotional because the emotions are to me it's right at the top of that cup it's always just about ready to boil over but it's not for the most part mm-hmm. and when it does it's just a little bit and I'm open to that and I'm that's fine, with fine. It. and that's it's fine. perfectly yeah. fine exactly I have no problem sharing my emotions I have no problems crying when I need to cry and I tell people that all the time because if they see me do it it opens them to feel comfortable doing it. You're modeling. And, and sometimes that's what you need is you just need to cry. You just, you just need to talk. You just need to get it out. Uh, but, but a lot of the things that I thought were like, people are getting upset over this. So you think that is a bad day? Let me tell you what a bad day is. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, So a lot of these things just don't matter anymore. I mean, sure, I'll work on it. I'll try to fix it, but I'm really not going to, put that much emotion into it because yeah, it's just not worth it yeah it won't stay right it won't no. stay it doesn't stick no 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 yep. and, there, and i've got much other important things to put mm-hmm. my my emotion into one of these important things is the pamphlet that you're putting together so what is that about and please do let me know when it's done because i want to add it as a resource on my web page and i also want to tell uh, the listeners who are hearing this uh, conversation here and they're wondering where can I find a group? If you go to my website and you click on resources, 
and grief, or if you, if you click on grief, you can find a support group. I have a link there that goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And you can actually put your like uh, zip code and it will tell you where the groups are. Or you can just Google it with the area where you are. There are support groups really spread all over, at least here in the US. So I hope that that helps. So tell us about the pamphlet. What is it about? I really think support groups, if, if, if you, your listeners and stuff, if you've never been to a support group, go to one. Um, it, it's a different experience. And in my opinion, a really good experience for somebody like this. Um, as far as the, the pamphlet goes, so it's kind of just in the beginning stages and everything, but um, uh, I titled it, What Do I Do Now? And it says advice from a lost survivor of murder-suicide. Um, and it's basically just some basic tips. Uh, we're hoping to, to print this and give it to first responders, give it to mortuaries, um, you know, places where, where people go to. Yeah. yeah, and they're lost. I mean, that first week, I mean, that first week, you're, it's all about the funeral arrangements and all the shock and, and, and everything. And you really can't comprehend a lot of this until after the funeral. And then after the funeral, like we had a little joke. It was like, when the funeral potatoes are gone, potatoes are gone. What do you do? That's when every, everybody goes home, everybody else goes home and you're still stuck with this. And the, with murder suicide, it's a little bit different um, than regular suicide. So I put this like, you know, little tips, like don't read the news, you know, with regular suicide, you don't worry about that murder suicide. It's going to be in the news and the story's never going to be right. You know, and, and I put, in here, my experiences, what happened to me and why I say don't read the news because of this, because of that. And realistically, it doesn't matter if the news gets it right or not, because tomorrow it's a different story. You know, don't dwell on that. You got so much more to dwell on. So, so there's just little tips, you know, finding the lifeline. Like I told you with my sister-in-law, she was my lifeline, you know, mm. so finding a I lifeline. I love that so, name, lifeline. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, little things like that. Uh, don't make major decisions right then. You, you know, you're, you're, don't sell your house. Don't buy a car. Don't, you know, things like that. Give yourself some time because a lot of these decisions you might come to regret later, you know, because you're in the moment of things, you know, so it's, it's just little tips like that, that will at least get people on the right thing or on the right path. Um, and then on the back of it, I just kind of tell you know, my basic little story uh, mm -hmm. as far as what happened um, and why I feel like I'm in a position to give this advice so that mm -hmm. it's not just coming from some random person. It's, it's coming from somebody who's actually dealt with some of this and knows a little bit about what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you were talking, I'm thinking one of, one of the advices could be, I'm sure you have it down there, but be very selective about who is around you. Because we, again, that's a peculiarity of murder-suicide. There will be people who will blame you, not mm -hmm. only for the suicide, or maybe they'll believe you were the one who did it. So be very selective. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And and for the most part, you know, the family, you're, you're going to be around your family and your friends at first. It's just when things start to settle down, you know, I mean, because for you, I mean, for me, year later, two years later, I'm still in this. But all of my family who didn't have that close of a relationship, they're back to their normal lives. All of my friends, they were back to their lives the week after, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm still kind of in this rut, like, hey, what about me, you know, type of a thing. Um, and then that's when you do have to very, really be careful, because there are people out there who will try and take advantage or just, you know, they, I've had people post just stupid things. Yeah. on social well, media oh that's one it. avoid social media yeah yeah <laughs> if you have yeah. to choose between the news and social media watch the news <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but you know and if you watch the news most likely you're not going to see something but if you go read the news and you look for it you will, you will. and that's where the issue comes and you know is you know, just be careful yeah well michael how was this for you as oh, it was good. the first one yeah, it was it was actually really good. I I do want to show. So here's the picture. Well, well for those who are listening, go to my to my YouTube channel because Michael is showing the picture of 
His family, the girls. So this was in yeah. November, right before. So basically two months before. Two months before they died. Yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah. Oh. Yeah, go to my YouTube channel so you can see them. Thank so, you. Thank yeah. you for showing. Thank you for telling saying their names, talking about them, about what who they were when they were alive, because that's important. Yep. And and being proud to show that picture. And thank you so much for being so candid, Michael, and for giving me the immense honor of being the first to interview you. I'm really happy about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and your, wow, your, it's just a, an experience that no matter how much I try, I cannot relate to. And nobody and can really. I And I hope nobody does. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, is there any way, do you have... Do you want to be contacted? Maybe someone is listening, went through the same. Absolutely. Um, so you can reach me at uh, email address. It's uh, michael.johnson at loss.care. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thanks. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.